Hey everyone, welcome to the 107 podcast and the fifth and final episode of our special series called Meeting the Moment, using data to reimagine criminal justice. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. As we wrap up the series, I want to express my gratitude to our partner in this project, Recidiviz, a nonprofit organization that is using data-driven tools to help guide change in the criminal justice system. They have been so great to work with as we have explored this complex but important topic. Our mission at 107 is to make things that matter. So taking on criminal justice reform and looking at how data might help bring about needed change fits squarely into that goal. In each episode, we've interviewed a recidivist expert exploring different issues related to the criminal justice system. Our past episodes have explored why the United States is the global leader in mass incarceration, how government and technology might work more closely together to bring about needed change, how racism and bias in the data we gather may be a barrier to effective reform, and how human-centered design might offer us hope for more effective solutions to these problems. In this episode, we're going to leave you with signs of hope. The United States may be at a turning point with bipartisan support for some elements of criminal justice reform. We've also just seen a wave of decarceration due to COVID concerns that may actually pave the way for future efforts to reduce our prison populations. We'll examine these ideas in a moment, but first, I want to revisit the story of Tara Simmons, a recently elected state legislator in Washington who spent time in prison and who is using that experience now to try to reform the system and help others break free of the cycle of incarceration. Through each of our episodes, Tara has given us unique perspective about the criminal justice system. Tara's voice has served as a reminder that criminal justice is not about numbers, it's about human lives. It's also about hope. Here are some of the highlights of Tara's story and the lessons we can learn from her experiences, starting with the events that led to her time in prison. The biggest charge was delivery of my oxycodone. So I sold to an under an informant, you know, a, a few pills. I wasn't like pushing kilos, but <laughs> it's still illegal, you know, and that was the charge that actually sent me to prison. But then I was also charged with uh, possession of drugs, uh, possession with intent, unlawful possession of a firearm because there was a gun in a, a rental car of mine. And then theft, uh, organized retail theft. I was stealing from Walmart to support my habit. So those were, I, mean, I got five charges all at once and ended up with a 30-month uh, prison sentence. It was actually something before I was ever arrested. I knew that I was struggling with substance use disorder, but I didn't know where to go to get help. I was really afraid that if I told my providers um, that you know, they would turn me into the nursing board and I would lose my nursing license. I didn't know where I could go without also getting negative consequences. 
And that's part of the problem is that we stigmatize substance use disorder in such a way that it is illegal and that there is negative consequences and it affects other areas of your life, such as losing your children or losing your professional license or something like that. If I could have went to the police and said, here's my drugs, I need help and hope, not handcuffs, <laughs> you know, that I think that would be really great. I went to work release uh, four months before I left prison, so I still count that as part of my period of incarceration, but it's like a halfway house where you can actually go in the daytime and, and look for work and things like that. So I ended up you know, getting a job at a fast food restaurant, but what I really wish I would have had when I left prison was not a criminal record <laughs> that continues to haunt me to this day because it you know, kind of kept me out of qualified jobs that I could have done that made a lot more money. And so basically, you know, the criminal record itself is kind of a punishment to lifelong poverty. And that's what I really wish I would have had is not a criminal record. You've done your time and it's, it's hard to survive after that. The person who ended up representing me in the state Supreme court was none other than Sean Hopwood who had become a, a lawyer in Washington state after robbing five banks at gunpoint and serving 12 years in federal prison. So the irony of that alone <laughs> was, was kind of amusing. Uh, and of course, you know, he did amazing advocacy on my behalf. Something happened that day that never happens. Uh, usually it takes the Supreme court, you know, four or five months at least to issue an opinion and we left the courthouse that day on November 16th of 2017. And we thought, you know, we might hear back in April and came home. And within hours, the Supreme Court issued a unanimous decision allowing me to take the bar exam. So it was pretty special, pretty special. Formerly incarcerated people uh, are an identity that needs to be, needs to have representation also. We face you know, so many challenges from early childhood through educational systems, through healthcare systems, uh, and obviously the criminal justice system. But our voices are never really centered in these discussions about how we're going to improve systems. I did it for a lot of reasons. I also did it because I love my community here uh, and I want to make sure everybody has a first chance so they don't need a second chance later on in life. Tara's path from prison to being a public servant and a leader in her community is inspiring, and it gives her unique perspective on how difficult it can be to break free of the criminal justice system. As a final thought from Tara, I asked her what advice she would give to people who are incarcerated right now. I would just say do not give up hope because laws change you have people that are advocating for all kinds of opportunities to have resentencing. Um, I don't care how long you've been sentenced to. Don't give up hope. Continue to find a purpose, even if you're incarcerated, around mentoring or supporting others who may have a sooner release date than you because there are people advocating for you as well. And then make sure you have a plan for when you come home a really thought out plan about, you know, who are you going to call at 2 a.m. when you wake up with a nightmare around maybe some abuse that you endured while you're incarcerated? Or how are you going to maintain your sobriety? How are you going to survive financially? 
you know, be thinking about all of those things so you can be well prepared when you come home and not ever go back. I want to offer my sincere thanks to Tara for being willing to share her story and for the important work she's doing now in the state legislature in Washington, working for criminal justice reform. In many ways, the issues around criminal justice seem so immense, it's easy to get discouraged and to feel like nothing will ever really change. Thankfully, this is not the case. In recent years, we've actually been making progress and the momentum for reform may be building. To delve into the current trends and possibilities, I'm pleased to welcome Taryn Patel-Wilson, a product manager at Recidivas. Taryn, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and about your role with Recidivas? It's great to be here, so thank you for having me. Like you said, I'm Taryn. I am a product manager at Recidivis. Um, we're a technical nonprofit that works with state governments to help identify ways to reduce the size of the criminal justice system in that state in a way that's equitable and sustainable. Particularly, I have recently been working on some of our policy impact modeling, so projecting what the impacts of different types of reforms might be. I'm originally from North Carolina, the suburbs of Charlotte near Davidson College. I went to Yale where I studied computer science, learned a lot of different things at this point, sort of was a little bit of my intro to, to criminal justice. But um, after I graduated, I moved to the Bay Area where I worked at Google for a number of years. And then for the last two years, I've been at Recidivis. It was a bit of a windy, windy journey to, to get to Recidivis, but I started as an engineer and so like worked on a lot of our initial uh, platform developments that we've done. And then the last couple of months, I have been working as a product manager, working on some of this, our policy work um, that I'm happy to dive into as well. What exactly is your role as a product manager? So a product manager, it's a bit of a, a amorphous role. Um, it is generally like we're supposed to be like advocates for the users within our company. And so we like work a lot with engineers. We work a lot with designers to build the products that like most serve the folks that we're working with. So the product that I have been working most closely with recently is, uh, like I mentioned, it's where you do some impact projection of different policies. So essentially lawmakers, advocates, state governments, when they have a policy that they're interested in, uh, that they're interested in when it's related to criminal justice and they don't have good data on sort of what are the projected impacts of this policy. Um, we have a team that, that sort of helps them understand that and can create sort of these one pages that, that summarizes what data um, or what the impacts might be. So you're trying to look at whether or not a policy has been effective and how. It's a lot of projection. It's a lot of forward-looking things. Yeah, so it's essentially the idea is like folks work really, like advocates, lawmakers, um, folks within state governments work really, really hard to get legislation passed and go through the legislative process that do incredible types of reforms. And something that is sometimes missing is sort of an understanding of what what are the potential impacts of this policy in like five years? Like what, how many people will be let out of prison? How many people will be off of probation because of this? How will it affect sort of racial equity? How will, what are the fiscal impacts of this? And so basically when that type of analysis doesn't already exist for a piece of legislation, we try and provide it using where um, data science team has created a, a fantastic model that like uses public data to help, help do that. So we can help folks 
basically the goal is to like have decision makers, so folks that are looking at these policies and voting on them and deciding what what types of things uh, to implement, to have them have a as much information as possible when they're they're making those decisions. So they have information and hard data and projected analyses that maybe they wouldn't have had in the past so that they can make solid decisions for the policies that they're trying to implement. Yep, that's a good a good summary. Great. Well, we've talked a great deal about um, in the series about how kind of we lead the world in numbers in terms of mass incarceration. And in our first episode, Tilly talked about how we are less than 5% of the world's population, but we actually incarcerate over 25% of prisoners in the world, and that that number is even worse for women. Those don't sound like amazing statistics, but I want to try to talk about why we should be hopeful, because even though the numbers are bad, there's been some progress, and since the height of the numbers in 2007 or between 2007 and 2010, we've made some progress in a few areas. And I know that you know a great deal about this progress. One of the things that I think we should talk about is bipartisanship, something we see so rarely in DC. It seems to exist within the criminal justice system. Tell me about that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I feel like the the large stats around exactly how how great of a problem this is and how uniquely um, American in some ways, the, the criminal justice mass incarceration is are, are staggering. And that was sort of my first intro to criminal justice as well. But there are definitely some, some reasons to be hopeful. So I think that there are a few things like, as you were mentioning, our incarcerated population rose some 700% between like the seventies and around 2010, 2007, 2010. Wow. Yeah. Insane and heartbreaking and has devastated lots of communities. But there are a few things that I think are are worth being hopeful about. One is that there have been some huge advocacy and social movements and public pressures. And so we see this in a lot of different ways. Folks are talking about mass incarceration in a way that is exciting. So like there, a lot of it has come from advocates. A lot of it has come from things such as social movements like the Black Lives Matter movement, which has made sure that all of our as we talk about criminal justice reform, we're doing it in a way that is uh, centered on racial equity. So understanding like the ways that our criminal justice system, not only is it enormous, but it has also like affected certain communities in really um, like black and brown communities in disproportionate ways. And so some of the things that are hopeful is like a lot of the reforms that are being talked about, not only reduce incarceration, but are also doing it in a way that attempts to address some of these inequities. So like differences in sentencing based on drugs, like we've had recent pushes for the legalization of marijuana and also expungement of the records for folks that were previously arrested. Some elimination of like mandatory minimum prison sentences, which have all been uh, impacts in different states in different ways, but generally have impacted communities of color more. Um, so more on the, like having it's a harsh mirror to see, but is, is up, like exciting that we're, we're looking at the problem head on. Another thing that you mentioned that I think is worth calling out also is that there is currently and hopefully a longstanding uh, bipartisan alignment in the criminal justice system and understanding that the U.S. system needs overhaul from both the right and the left. I do a little bit of policy modeling for folks that ask for it, um, but we see folks from the far right, from the far left, large national nonprofits, small grassroots organizations, religious communities, people from all perspectives that definitely like differ on exactly what the specific policy implementations might be, but 
generally agree that there needs to be a smaller, more equitable footprint of the criminal justice system. And so some of the stuff that I've done has been cool to see that bipartisan coalition. And like you said, it's not, I don't know that it's unique to criminal justice, but it's definitely not, uh, not the norm that I'm used to, at least. Do you have a feel for what that nugget is that actually makes it bipartisan? I think that part of it is sort of the the starkness of how it's like from the numbers and from a, a standpoint is just so starkly obvious that this is a problem, right? That there are like our population increased, like I said, 700% over the last several decades that um, we have like 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's incarcerated population. Like none of this, it's like, it's pretty hard to refute. Um, I think that there is, that there is an issue. And so I think that that has helped. It seems like folks come at it from different from different directions and different things matter more. I think that there's just like a lot that is wrong with the criminal justice system. And so there's there's parts that everyone can get on board with. And it's easier to work together when you're, you're basically agreeing that the problem is there, but certain aspects of it are more important to some people than to others. And so it's easier maybe to work together when that happens. Yeah, 100 percent. And also what's been like... Ex- like there has been progress, so I don't mean to like we've we've mentioned some of the the terrible stats um, around like the increase in prison population, but from the height of mass incarceration until I believe until twenty twenty, sort of pre even pre pandemic, there was about a nine percent decrease in the prison population. Which obviously there is still like a long way to go, given um, given the what has happened in the decades previously. But that does provide hope, some hopeful momentum that we're moving in the right direction, right? And so, like, if we can keep this bipartisan coalition, if we can keep some of these public pressures and build on that momentum, um, hopefully we'll continue to move in the right direction. So that is hopeful. So, so we've reduced the incarcerated population by 9% in 10 years. And in the previous 40 years, we saw a 700% increase. So comparatively not a whole lot but still moving in the right direction has there been a reduction in racial disparities as well in certain areas yes there has been so some of the admissions statistics have changed i know that there are a lot of new reforms that have sort of have been aimed at addressing some of the racial inequities that our system has had before so some of the like changes in drug sentencing to make sure that there isn't uh, an overwhelming majority of black and brown folks that are disparately impacted or some of the like expungement of marijuana records that we're seeing very recently um, is sort of a, a call to to try and reduce some of the disparities that previously existed. So we're definitely we're definitely seeing people focus on it, um, and there's definitely been progress made in that sense. That's great. That's really great. You've talked about um, policy impact studies and modeling. That makes it sound like legislators are starting to actually look for data, like they're actually looking at numbers to sort of drive their legislative decision-making. Is that a fair assessment? Are they actually interested in data? Or am I extrapolating too much here? That's definitely right. Legislators are looking for data to help drive their decisions. And like I was saying before, it's it's hard. Like there's advocates, like lawmakers, um, people within state governments all do incredible, incredible work to get uh, legislation and policy passed. And they, like their work spans lots of things, right? They identify the problems, they're building public sentiments, crafting narratives, getting folks excited. But what can be missing, especially in criminal justice policies, is sort of what is the impact of this potential policy? Like what do we expect 
to have happen in five or 10 years? Like how many people will be out of prison? Will there be fewer admissions? How will this affect racial disparities? Like what are the cost? Like how much will this cost? Like will this cost things? Will it save the state money? And all of those things matter to different people at different times throughout the legislative process. And so that's like, as I, what I was alluding to is some of what we have been working on is for anyone who asks us whether isn't already impact statements, because there are nonprofits and other folks that are trying to, that are doing this as well. We try and project sort of the impacts of what a policy might be. Um, basically with the whole overall goal is that like folks who are actually making the decisions about what policies pass and which don't should have a full picture of what, what the policy could do or what the projected impact is going to be as they're making that decision. Is there a way you can talk about a specific example or something that you've recently worked on that might give us a kind of more insight into the specific of specifics of this? For sure. I realize that that's a bit abstract without uh, a concrete example. So one of the, one of the things that we, we helped work with, um, obviously we did a small part of it, but we helped work on a probation cap bill in California at the end of last year. The idea with probation is that it's supposed to be an alternative to prison time where um, folks are under supervision. The, the idea is that it prevents people from, from committing new crimes or catches folks when they do. One of the things that's interesting about the U.S. is that we have about 4 million people on probation. Our average probation rate is about 400% greater than European countries, so we use it a lot. Is that good or bad? That we use it a lot. In a lot of ways, in the criminal justice system, it seems like we are, we are doing it more so than all of our counterparts. And one of the things that's interesting about probation research, there's actually a lot of research that all of the things that people are worried about with probation, so catching new crimes, um, generally that happens within the first couple of years of probation. So there's a lot of research on this, some from the Department of Justice. Um, and it turns out that after a certain amount of time, that probation is less effective at catching the things that people are scared about. And it's more effective in catching things such as in uh, criminal justice called like technical violations. So those are violations that aren't new crimes. So no, someone didn't break the law, but that they broke some of the rule of their supervision. So it could be that they didn't meet with their parole or probation officer or that they um, missed a, a specific type of test that they were supposed to take. Or they broke the speed limit and got arrested as a result because they were on parole or probation, rather. Exactly. So all of those things that you were just mentioning are things that are not breaking the law. The folks who are, have super long probation sentences, if the research shows that it turns out if they're not committing new crimes, but they're getting caught back up in this incarceration system because of technical violations, like that's, that's a huge problem. And so the probation cap bill was essentially California lowering the, length, the maximum length that someone could be on probation um, to what it thought made sense based on this research. We were able to use data that was available to model how many people would be, this would be impacted. What is the potential impact on racial disparities? What is the potential cost avoidance? So like how much money is the state not going to spend by having fewer people on probation? We, we worked very closely with uh, an advocate partner who was working with other advocates and lawmakers, and we like, had data just be a very, very small part of this entire, this entire process, but it was helpful um, in making sure that the decision makers had access to not only everything that everyone else was providing, but also had an, an understanding of what the potential impacts of this particular piece of reform could be. We're certainly not the first folks that are working on this. There are tons of organizations that, that do some of this analysis, but it's super exciting, I think, to think about like, what if the new norm for criminal justice legislation or any type of legislation was that we had an expectation and an understanding of what the impacts could be. 
the fact that you can use data and modeling to try to understand the effect before you actually implement it and to make a sound decision based on that analysis is like, I almost feel like this should be the de facto standard. Like, why aren't we doing this if we're, if we're not doing this? Would love it to be the standard. I mean, there, there are several reasons why it um, isn't as, as ever everywhere as you would expect. I mean, part of it is that it's a really, it can be really hard. There's like part of the reason that recidivism is around is because some of the, the criminal justice data can be very uh, disparate. Like there are lots of different actors that have different pieces of data that are, have different levels of being publicly available and whatnot. And that sounds like a symptom of the fragmentation of um, the criminal justice system that we've also talked about in the series as well. There's so many different uh, organizations, governments, local states, courts, all of these places that all store their own data in their own way. And there's really no way to, no easy, good way to consolidate and collate it all. Departments of correction do model um, some policies, but it's like a hard, it's a, they're inundated with lots and lots of requests to model different policies. And they often like, as uh, are like limited with resources. And so it can be very difficult as well. And there are some nonprofits that also do, do this work as well, but it's, it's, there's a lot of room for, uh, like, it's definitely not the norm in a lot of policies. Um, so I am excited to, like, help do our small part in, in making it more of the norm. Tell me about the feedback loop. We've talked about doing the analysis of the data before the legislation is passed. What about after it's passed and measuring effectiveness of legislation and closing that feedback loop? And tell me why that's important and what's being done right now. Or I, I think of it at least in sort of two two halves, right? If legislation and policies change what's possible, um, like you said, there's also work to sort of close that feedback loop. Make sure that the expected impact is actually happening. So let's identify what the upside could be with this legislation, and then let's also achieve that upside. Yeah, it's another side of the story. It's like, what actually, like, we passed this amazing legislation. What actually happened? Did it have the impact we expected? Did, not, did it not? Who is it affecting? And that's a really important question that um, is sometimes hard to answer. So like one of the, an interesting example that we've encountered is in our work with one of our partner states, Idaho, um, who's been an incredible partner and we've worked for or worked with for a couple of years. A couple of years ago, I want to say in 2017, there was this incredible victory that was won and there were a lot of new reforms that were targeted at improving outcomes on supervision. So helping folks that were either on parole or probation um, improve outcomes and get off of it and not go back to prison and succeed, right? And so this was done with an amazing work from advocates, organizations, from researchers, from internal state groups. Um, and one of the new measures that it established was allowing what they called earned discharge. And so this was just allowing folks to leave supervision early if they fell into certain categories. When we partnered with Idaho, their leadership, one of the things that their leadership asked us to do was to see how is this new directive going. They had the data but didn't have the tools to see sort of live how many earned discharge were there. What does this pipeline generally look like? Are people making it, getting discharged early? Who's getting discharged early? Where? Um, all the things that would be like useful to sort of monitor how the implementation side of it was going. And so... We worked with Idaho leadership to create some tools that would help POs across the state. We first did an analysis to see what is happening with these earned discharges. And it turns out that um, earned discharges were not being used nearly to the rate that Idaho had expected and to the goals that they had set for themselves several years ago. 
And so one of the things when we presented this with to, to Idaho leadership is they were very excited about sort of building tools that would help make sure that this earned discharge, this new process was being used. And so we worked with them to help create tools that sort of proactively let folks, parole and probation officers know when someone is eligible for earned discharge to help bring those numbers up. So like a, a text message or an email, how does that physically get implemented? We're still rolling it out exactly. So the, some of the design is, is TBD, but essentially the idea is that like, how can we surface to parole and probation officers who understand who's on their caseload? How can we make sure that one of the things that they know about is also that like this person is eligible for earned discharge? And so we have, we have some tools that we've built out for them that just sort of lets that be a notification that they also see. And so that it's something that they can then talk with the, the person on supervision about and hopefully use. I think that it's very exciting to think of if every policy had this, like not only sort of a goal and an understanding of what the expected outcome would be, but then also like, let's make sure we monitor the progress and see on the implementation side, which is a totally different side, like is what we expected to have happen happening? Where are things getting stuck? Like how is, are we impacting just like one subset of the population in one area? Like there are all these interesting questions that sort of arise and that like are able to be looked at and whatnot if you have like up-to-date data, which is something that we're, we're trying to work on. It's very agile, right? It's very software related the way you're talking about this. And it makes total sense, right? You want to fail fast. You want to see the implementation, see where you're failing, and then go back to the drawing board and implement something new to address that thing. I'm guessing you can't exactly talk about it as failures in the product when you're talking about it. It's got to be talked about in a different way, I think. I mean, there's definitely like more sensitivity. Like we have to be more careful than with like classic consumer technology products, right? It's like there's more, there's more an emphasis of getting it right up front. Perspective changes are important as well. But yeah, I, I think that you're, you're absolutely right. Like the goal is when folks pass policies they believe in and will think we'll have good impacts, like let's make sure we're having those good impacts. And like that could be super powerful. Um, I know that one thing that like, some of the advocacy groups and the legislators and some of the folks that we've talked to talk a lot about is this idea of reform fatigue, which is right. People, people fight tooth and nail to get reforms passed that are incredible. But if you're not sure if they worked or not, or can't like display that um, or tell folks that like this helped these people, it causes some fatigue and sort of delays the process of getting new reforms passed. It creates less momentum. And so for if every bill you could say, for instance, like prison populations were reduced, racial disparities were reduced, costs were reduced. Um, that would be incredibly powerful from like a momentum building standpoint. The reasons that we're cautiously optimistic and continuing to build some of that momentum, it would be incredible. This makes me cautiously optimistic as well. I, I mean, I would love to have the scale across even bigger swaths of the population, other states, other jurisdictions, that that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah me too. So everything we've talked about so far has really been sort of without the idea of the pandemic present. And the pandemic's been with us for over a year now, hard to believe. And I'm sure that the pandemic has affected, maybe sped things up in the criminal justice system. What has changed? How have things changed because of the pandemic and the work you've been doing? That's a great question. I want to start with like, I think the obvious, but is worth restating is like the pandemic COVID has been horrible, right. And terrible for everyone involved, but especially folks within the criminal justice system, right. People in prison, 
it's like one of the worst places to be. We've seen lots of articles and investigations around how at early stages, like prisons were hotspots for COVID. Um, and there's lots of spread of sickness and hospitalizations and deaths. And this quite literally forced everyone in a pretty like fragmented criminal justice space to think of ways to decarcerate. So like reduce the prison and jail populations quickly. And so what has been interesting about the last year from a criminal justice perspective is it, it did force all these different actors, right? Like district attorney offices, courts, departments of corrections, departments of supervision. It's a question of how can we quickly and safely reduce incarceration, right? That was top of mind as we were trying to fight this pandemic. What's interesting is that prison populations across the U.S. are down about 17% in the last year, which is huge, considering especially we talked about how in the decade beforehand there had been about a 9% decrease. And so now there's been a 17% decrease in this year. That's a big change for a criminal justice system that is is trying to unwind its footprint, right? That's something that that is remarkable. We doubled the speed at, well, doubled. We It's more than double. It's because 10 years and compared to one year, and we got twice as many people out in one year as we did in 10 years. That's That's incredible. So I think what you're saying is COVID somehow sped up the reform efforts and basically removed whatever the obstacles were in getting people decarcerated. Yeah, by necessity did just that. Wow. Can you talk about what those changes were? Yeah, absolutely. So they changed. It varies state to state in terms of like what it was exactly done, but there are a couple of different types of changes that happened, right? So there was uh, lots of states increased discharges from prison or jail on, on supervision. So like this could look in the in the fashion of sort of elderly parole. So um, parole is a system where you serve part of your sentence instead of serving it in prison. You serve the tail end of your sentence in the community under the same sort of supervision that you have with probation. Um, that's it at a super high level. And so like there were increased uh, folks who are above a certain age in a lot of states were automatically eligible for parole, right? There was sort of an increase in parole grant rates. So when someone is eligible for parole, they don't always necessarily go from prison to parole. There's a, like a board that usually hears their case. And so there was a huge increase in grant rates. There was a, another type of, a lot of states did what we call, com, or it's called compassionate releases, which are just releases from prison for like extenuating circumstances. So whether it's family illness, their own illness, um, different reasons. So there was one of the, one of the things was that there was an increased set of discharges to supervision. Another set of changes that a lot of states did was also reducing what is called revocations, which are basically when folks are on some form of supervision and go back into prison. That's called a revocation. And we obviously want to make those go like the, the goal state is that that never happens. Right. And so there were a lot of lot of different things that happened. So there were some increased leniency on technical revocations. So like the types of revocations that we were talking about that aren't breaking laws, but are breaking rules of supervision. There were some places that had reduced penalties for some technical violations. Some folks uh, suspended some of the types of drug and alcohol testing um, as a part of that. And so that's like a series of changes to the way that people experience their sentence or whatnot, or whether people transitioning from supervision to incarceration. But there are also like a host of operational changes that made life less burdensome for people. Places relaxed some of their contact standards with parole and probation officers and maybe made them less frequent for folks who are on supervision. They, like the rest of the world, have had to like operate in a remote basis. So 
like contacts with the PO, a parole or probation officer, can in a lot of places can be done over phone or by video chat, um, as opposed to having to go into the office. And similarly, like things like the parole board, the folks that meet to decide if people should actually go out on parole or not, can be done remotely. And so some of these things are like seemingly small, but can have big impacts. It's interesting because like a lot of like some of the changes that impacted these numbers were temporary for sure, right? Like closure of courts, um, reduced number of arrests for the pandemic might be more temporary, but some of these are like big changes in like the way that we let folks in and out of the system. Um, and so there's like a big open question of now that we're sort of, we can see a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel with, with the, the pandemic. And as the vaccine rolls out, like which of these policies are going to stick, right? Like which ones made sense from a data perspective, which of these can we continue? It strikes me that the pandemic was a catalyst to all of a sudden make all these changes just to get the numbers down so that the pandemic isn't worse on the inside in prisons than it, it could be. I wonder if it hadn't been for this catalyst of the pandemic, how long those changes would have otherwise have taken. And to me, it's like, well, if we could do them seemingly overnight, because there's this, this thing called the pandemic, what other changes are there that we're not making, that we're making other excuses for? that we could just do overnight and maybe get additional results. We had this moment because the pandemic where everyone was focused on the same goal of decarceration. And like one of the big questions is like how we did a lot, obviously, and moved mm -hmm. much more quickly than folks were expecting. How can we continue that? Right. Like now that we, we don't want the pandemic to be the, the only reason that there is this sort of collective focus. We're at a super unique point, right? It's like a giant, we did a giant experiment of a bunch of different decarceration policies across the U.S. And now we're at the point where we're sort of can go in either direction, right? Like how, like in an ideal world, like how do we take sort of where we are now and use this as the new baseline to build decarcerative changes, right? Or like the other direction is like, we want to make sure that we don't bounce back to sort of the populations that we had a year ago. That's a risk, isn't it? that we had this decarceration that was monumental over the last year because of the pandemic. And then all of a sudden everything bounces back. Definitely. And I'm, I'm hopeful because it does seem like there has been a lot of momentum and I'm hopeful that we can capture some of that. And that data will play some story of, of showing folks like these are the types of changes that happened. And if we can show what the impacts were generally, like there was no increased recidivism, et cetera, there are definitely stories to tell um, based on the data about like what, what worked well and what didn't. I think that the incarceration system is also going to be held a little bit under a microscope as well because sort of the collateral consequences of the pandemic that aren't uh, medical, but like there have been, it's a huge economic crisis. Incarceration in states is the third biggest category in the state budget, which behind healthcare and education. And so states are going to have to face budget cuts and have like a lot of scrutiny on sort of where they're, where they're spending money. And so if there are changes that are both make sense from a decarceration standpoint, but also save the state money, it feels like those should be front and center or could be front and center in a lot of folks' minds. And it does seem like a lot of the reforms that happens around sort of the peak of mass incarceration were some of the fallout from the 2008 recession. So there are reasons that point us hopefully towards the latter of that we're going to continue with these changes and continue to move forward and continue to build momentum. Um, but we're at a super interesting inflection point. What do you think the biggest learning has been from the last year, at least from your perspective? I think that it's sort of what you were getting at, which is just like, we can move, like things can move very quickly 
if everyone's in alignment, right? If everyone is focused on the same goal, we can make very quick decisions in a way that I think might have seemed impossible a year ago. There are obviously ways that we could have moved more quickly and ways that like there were outbreaks in prisons and jails that in an ideal world would not have happened. But it is just amazing to see the speed at which we were able to do things much faster than I think people a year and a half ago would have expected at all. Yeah, it's amazing what we can do together once we have a common goal and alignment as humans. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tara's story has been so hopeful from teen mom getting her GED of four years in one year, spending time in prison, becoming an attorney, becoming an elected state representative. It's something that really can serve as a shining example of what's possible. It's totally inspirational. What are you hopeful about? Why do you keep working on this problem and in this field? I totally agree. That story is hugely inspirational and incredible and just like reinforces all the reasons that we need to make sure that folks who have been impacted by the system are are front and center of all of these discussions, right? I think that there are lots of reasons that I am continued and excited to like continue the work that we're we're have. Like part of it is I think like hearing about stories like Tara and like really like we do a lot of data work, but like also it's amazing how like Data is, is awesome for quantifying and showing folks the scale of impacts, but it's also like the hearing human stories and hearing folks like personal narratives is also incredibly powerful. Personally, one of the things that I have, as I mentioned, have been involved in some of the like talking to a lot of different advocates and lawmakers across the U.S. that are interested in this and sort of seeing the like disparate places like across the U.S. and across the uh, like from all sorts of different types of organizations, talking to all sorts of different types of people who are all focused on on this issue is extremely exciting and motivating and something I knew about, but like hadn't like interacted with in the same way that I have recently. And I also I do think seeing a lot of the push for criminal justice reform from like a racial equity lens that's been coming from a lot of the Black Lives Matter movements has also been really inspiring. Could go on and on. There are lots of reasons that I'm continually excited about the work, but those are a few of them. Thanks for your time today, Taryn. It's been awesome talking to you. Thank you for the energy you've brought to the episode, to the knowledge that you've been able to share, the data, and to your perspective. And appreciate the time that you've had with us today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time today as well. Meeting the Moment Using Data to Reimagine Criminal Justice has been a partnership between 107 and Recidivis. If you missed any of the episodes, want to listen again, or wish to share the series with someone, you can find all the episodes at 107.com slash moment. I now want to take a moment myself to thank the people that made this series possible. First, thank you, Tara, for being willing to tell your story. Your arc is inspirational and I hope we'll be able to get to a place in our country when we no longer need those second chances you spoke of. Thank you, Clementine, for your inspiring leadership of recidivism, something without which this series would not have been possible. It's been a joy to have met you and to have worked with you. Thank you. Thank you also to Marie, Lisa, Tilly, Andrew, Julia, Serena, and Taryn 
for preparing, for meeting, for revising, for reviewing, for thinking, and for using each of your voices to show the empathy you all clearly have and that our world needs. Thank you to the entire team at Recidivas for partnering with us to make this series a reality. To the folk at 10.7, thank you to Brian for hearing the thoughts in my head and turning them into words I can speak. Thank you to Jonathan for working tirelessly to produce the audio that you're listening to right now. Thank you to Lex for the music and for his Ableton chops. And thank you to Roxanne for the transcriptions. The whole 107 team is amazing. And thank you, our listener. I hope you're inspired by listening to this series. I hope you'll do something in your own circles to make our world a more just and equitable place. I hope we've contributed to your life's story in some way. I hope you'll go out and want to make things that matter as well. I wish you peace. We'll be back in two weeks' time with our regularly scheduled programming. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening.